What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Fast Track. I'm your host, Greg Helbeck. And on this podcast, you are going to learn exactly how to be a successful real estate investor step by step by me interviewing some of the top real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the entire country. And there's also going to be a bunch of episodes where I'm just going to individually talk about real estate deals that I've done that have been successful, some deals that haven't been successful. I'm going to talk about my weekly real estate investing lessons, stuff that I've learned from the trenches that you can learn for free on this podcast. So if you're looking to level up your game as a real estate investor or become a real estate investor, this is the podcast to listen to. So if you do get value from the show today, please do me a favor and leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you are listening on so we can get this message in front of more people. And without further ado, welcome to the show. All right, Matt, welcome to the Real Estate Investing Fast Track. I've been looking forward to this for a couple of weeks. Yeah, good good to be here. Glad to for share. Sure. For sure, buddy. So you have definitely been around the block in the real estate business. You've been how long did you how long have you been doing this for? Like 20 years almost? Yeah, going this will be my 19th year. Yeah. Damn, man. That is a, has a long time and a lot of experience. So before mm. you got into real estate, what were you doing before you took the leap of faith to be an entrepreneur? So when I graduated from high school, I tried to go to college. I wasn't really what you'd call a good student in high school. So the college thing wasn't really, I wasn't really cut out for it. So I went to college for one semester and they told me not to come back after, after that semester was over. So I went to work in a machine shop at 19 years old and I did that until I got into real estate. Actually, I was still doing it for the first three years of real estate. So I worked in a machine shop, 12-hour shifts, making parts for John Deere, basically. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Completely different than real estate. So you went from machine shop worker to real estate investor, which are like two opposite mm -hmm. sides of the spectrum. So you get into the business. What was it like your first year? Because a lot of people listen to this and they have a really hard time getting that momentum. And then I always tell new investors, once you have some momentum, it becomes a lot easier because you get better. What was like your first mm -hmm. year like? Like, how did you get your first house? Mm -hmm. What was your plan and strategy? And then we'll get it how you've grown your business. Yeah, here's the thing. Real estate is hard. It's like anything in the beginning. It's hard. It's, hard, to, it's hard to do. You don't, it's a skill that you don't really understand. Yeah. And, you know, I got into it. My parents had never bought a house. I'd never bought a house. I lived in a 300 square foot apartment. My rent was 275 a month. You could actually, you can actually find an, an old YouTube video where I'm standing in my apartment and you can almost touch the walls. Here's the thing is it's all about how bad you want it. And if you want it bad enough, you'll do what it takes to figure it out in your first two or three years or whatever it takes to really get a lot of momentum. And so I wanted it pretty bad. And I spent a lot of time I, I worked it hard. So I worked a full-time job. I was working 50 plus hours a week and I didn't have weekends to myself. I didn't have nights to myself. I went all in on learning the business. So yeah. I started in 2005. And if anybody out know, there, you probably have a lot of viewers in there that maybe were in kindergarten during yeah, 2000. Right? Yeah. But during that time frame, that was a very difficult time for an investor to get started. It was the peak of the all-time peaks of real estate, which soon after fell into the worst economy since the Depression. But for three years, my first three years in the business, 2005, six, seven, those were some of the hardest years ever to get into real estate. Anybody that was basically dishonest enough to tell a bank that they had, they were making half a million dollars a year. It was like the old thing back then was stated income. I didn't do yeah. it, but a lot of people were just going to a bank saying, hey, I make 500 grand a year and they'd get a line of credit. So you were competing against literally everybody and anybody anybody could go and get credit and then use a line of credit to buy a house for cash. And so the market just went nuts. I didn't 
do that. I didn't want to go to jail or get in trouble. So I just worked. And I remember at one point I was making an offer and I was working with a real estate agent at the time. And I told her to make my offer all cash. And she's like, but Matt, you don't have all cash. And I'm like, I don't care. I just want to try. I want to get a house. And so she came back to me after she made the offer all cash. Here's what the seller said. They don't care if you have cash. Anybody can go to the bank and get the money. That's so true. that's competitiveness of the market back then. So my first deal was a four unit building that I found off market and I actually found it. An old school investor put a tiny little ad in the newspaper. Oh man, look at that. I was scanning the newspapers like crazy. And a lot of people were ignoring that stuff. Even in 05, like the newspaper was like on its way out. Uh, yeah. And I found that building. I basically went to a guy. I said, hey, I don't have the money to put this together, but I think it's a pretty good deal. He ended up putting up the money. We owned it together. And then we didn't do a ton of rehab to it, but got the, the bad tenants out, put good tenants in, went to the bank, refinanced it, pulled some cash out. I paid him off and then took over ownership of the building. I still have, I still own that building now. Oh shit. That's um, crazy. 19, yeah. My very first deal I still own. I don't know if I'll ever sell. We'll, we'll see. But, like, um, but I did a value. deal. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's some stuff there. So I did 12 deals in my first year, basically one a month during that tough phase, but I was very dedicated. I didn't go on a date for three years. I didn't go out for three years. Every weekend was spent all weekend, Saturday and Sunday in the business. I want to help people understand something that you don't necessarily have to go through those hard times and the dedication level that I did. But back then, there wasn't something called Facebook. There wasn't social media. I didn't know anybody doing real estate. I couldn't find a single person that was doing what I was doing. I was a by myself, trying to figure it out, reading books, trying to understand how to build the business. So imagine that. Imagine if you took away social media, how would you find people that you're doing deals with? You had to go old school and find out if there's a real estate investment club in the area. We had one. It was really small. I didn't discover it for a couple of years after I got into real estate. But you know what? When you learned back then, it was a different type of learning. And the people that made it were very few. And the people that persevered and made it did pretty well. And, yeah. and so I'm, I was very happy happy with the difficulty level that I went through in order to do those deals in the first three years. So I did my first deal November 10th, 2005. November of 2008 was now the opposite. We're in the worst economy since the depression. And I have a decision to make. I now own, by that time, I own 30 properties in my portfolio. I had some cash flow. I had paid off all my debt. I had some good experience. I just went through the toughest part of the market and learned how to negotiate with sellers, how to do marketing, how to bring in leads. I learned all that during a very tough phase when most people quit. So by 2008, I decided to leave my job and go full-time in real estate. And that might not sound that big of a deal, but if you went through the 08 phase and you saw the news and you saw how many people were losing their jobs, how many people are losing their homes? It was a scary time. Called my boss on November 7th, 2008, three years short of my three-year anniversary to my first deal, and told my boss, like, hey, I'll put in my two weeks notice, but I prefer today be my last day. That was it. That was my last day. I then now have all my time to do real estate. 
Plus I have the knowledge. I had about 20 grand in cash in the bank, which was the most money I'd ever have in my life. 30 properties in my portfolio, about 5,000 a month in cash flow. And between November of 2008 through 2013, I took my portfolio from 30 houses to 450 during that time frame. That is sick. That mm -hmm. is unbelievable. And you said the takeaways I'm getting from this is a lot of people, no matter when you start in real estate, like it's either a really good market, really bad market. You had the unique experience where you had a really hard market to start. And then as the market dropped, it was scary, but then the buying opportunities became better. Selling was mm -hmm. smarter, but it's all mm -hmm. balances out. But you got in at such a good time where you had to get those skills developed. And then that opportunity came for you and you turned the 30 into 400. You were in the quad cities. Yep. It's not a major market, but I'm sure back then when the market dropped, the quad cities, you probably say like, you could probably pick any property you wanted. Once mm -hmm. the market dropped, it was just like, kind yeah. Of yeah, the quad cities during that time didn't experience as drastic of a price cut as some of the coastal areas in Florida and Arizona. Vegas. Yeah. Yeah. So we still took a hit, which created an opportunity. And I took advantage of that opportunity while it was there. But it definitely dropped and then it rebounded over time. The thing about the Midwest is it's kind of like the little kitty roller coaster. Smaller ups and smaller downs, but there are ups and downs. You go on to some of the coastal areas and you big boy roller coaster. So yeah, so we took, we just, I just basically took those skills and took my portfolio. I also, I was in the process of building 450 properties in my portfolio. I was wholesaling a ton of houses at mm -hmm. the same time. So I was doing fix and flip. I was doing wholesaling and then I was keeping a certain amount too. So for every three deals, four deals, I would wholesale or flip. I would keep one for myself. And that's how I, and I did thousands of deals within about a five-year period, which has allowed me to build my portfolio to what it did. And I was making a ton of money too. At a, In a short amount of time, I'd made my first net million, paid taxes on million in 2013. So by that time, not only did I have 450 houses on, that I owned, I had seven figures in income and seven figures in cash in the bank too. So I was very bankable at this point. Yeah, I was going to say, you're like a banker's dream right there, bro. Yeah, but then I also became a target within a couple of years. I know you wanted to talk through what happened to me with yeah. my property manager. So now here's the problem, Greg, is like a lot of us are really good at making money and sometimes it's harder to keep a hold of yeah, it yeah, once you make it. And so what happened was in September 22nd of 2015, I get a call. That long ago, dude. That really wasn't yeah, long ago. It was like nine, yeah, years. nine years. Yeah, like eight yeah. years, eight and a half. But what happened was I hadn't received my rents on my 450 houses in two months. And that's a lot of money. Do the math. If you just do $1,000 a month rent, 450 houses times, so let's call it 900, 900 property with two months. It's 900 times 1,000. Do the math on how much money that is. Yeah. Plus my security deposits. Yeah. Plus all my maintenance reserves. I hadn't received my rents for two months. So I call my property manager and I'm like, I'm living out of state at this point. I'm living in Arizona. I'm like, I'm going to fly oh, in. Oh, so and... you weren't even local. So you were on the other side of the country when this happened. I thought mm -hmm. you were like local. Yeah. I was back and forth a lot. Yeah. And so I call my property manager and I'm like, listen, I'm no more dodging me. I'm coming in town. I'm going to meet you at noon today and I'm getting my money. What they do is people 
they trick you and what they do is they start paying a little bit late. Hey, Matt, I know I'm supposed to have the rents to you by the 15th of the month and then it's the 20th. Oh, hey, this came up and now it's the oh. 25th and oh man, we've got this and this going. We'll just yeah. pay it first of next month. That's easier for books. And then next thing you know, hey, this person was sick and it's been six weeks and I'd had enough excuses. And I finally just said, I'm going to meet you at noon. So long story short, she attempted suicide. She survived. So instead of me meeting her at noon, I find out she's attempted suicide. They put her in the hospital. She lives. She escapes at night in the middle of the night and they haven't, they never see her. I never saw her again. So we get the FBI involved. It's a lot of money. I have our bank accounts frozen within three days, but that's not fast enough. So they get back in touch with me and they're like, hey, we found less than $10,000 in her bank account. So she's on the run. I don't know who my tenants are. I don't yeah. have any leases. I don't have any keys to my properties. I don't have any applications. It's September 22nd of the month and I got new rents coming in in eight days and I have 450 houses and I don't even live there. Yeah. You don't even know what's going on. Yeah. I, I don't even know who to get. I, I have a list of properties I own. So I have two employees. You know how hard it is to get to 450 houses, knock on the door, meet somebody, convince them that you actually work yeah. on the property and that you need to pay rent. Didn't work on some of them. We got, we collected some of the rents as soon as October hit, a lot of ACHs were set up and all the money went back into her account again. So it went back into her account and we don't have control over that. We get a hold of that folio. We tell them to shut it off. They say, no, you don't pay the bill. She does. You can't tell us to shut off the, it's, it was an absolute nightmare. At the end of the day, she stole a million dollars from me. And then I lost another million over the next few months in trying to recapture rents, fix problems. She had said that tenants were paying. They weren't. It was an absolute nightmare. Had to evict a whole bunch of people, had a whole bunch of houses go vacant. It was an absolute nightmare. I can't so, believe that, man. That is like the landlord's worst nightmare times two, bro. I almost, I thought I was going out. I was down to about my last 20 grand and I had seven figures in cash in the bank. I was making a lot of cash just with my yeah. wholesale business, but this sidelined a lot of that because I had to focus all my effort on trying to collect rents and manage properties. My cash was quickly depleting to the tune of a hundred grand a month. And within a few months I was down, I told my team, I'm like, I think I'm going out. I got 20 grand left over and I sold a property, yeah. got a little cash. I don't give up, man. Like I'm a fighter, yeah. got some momentum, did a little bit of a rebound in 2016, kept the pieces together, started building some momentum. 2017 hit, I did 32 million in sales, sold a ton of properties and made all my money back and rebounded and survived. <laughs> Dude, that might be the craziest landlord story I've ever, and I've heard hundreds, right? I'm sure you yeah. have too. I don't think anything trumps that, dude, because that mm -hmm. not only did you have all those properties in one area where one manager was managing it, but you got the million dollar hit on the no rent and then the next million dollar hit. Mm -hmm. And then thank God you have the skills. This is the takeaway I'm getting is you, Matt, have the skills that you developed over the last 19 years to be able to make that kind of money again, recreate yourself mm -hmm. because that takes most people out, especially yeah, when nobody survives that. Yeah, you got 400 houses, you're the real estate king, and the, the people's identity will just get hidden to pieces, and then they can't come yeah. back from that. But you found yeah. a way to come back from that, and obviously you have the lessons and the scars to prove it. So one more question on that, and then we'll get into the whole virtual business thing, because it's amazing what you do now. That property manager, she just dodged out of the country. There's nothing you could do in terms of recourse. You could put a judgment on them, but what if they got nothing? You can't collect well. Yeah, it's hard to get a judgment in place against somebody if you can't serve them with paperwork. And Correct, yeah. So what happened was in 2020. One, the FBI called my attorneys and said, we're done working on this. It's just another rich dude that got taken advantage of. And yeah. so they gave me 50 grand as 
or a consolation prize. Here's here's fifty thousand dollars, and that's all we're willing to do. So that that was it. Six years later, they just said, "Hey, better luck next time, Mister Rich Guy. You'll be fine." And so the fifty grand is a joke. Best so, part about that is that the fifty grand it was your money because you paid the taxes on seven figures. Exactly. So they just gave you your money back, basically. A lot more than that in taxes. Yeah, but, I was gonna huh. say it was just it was like a little <laughs> smidge of your tax bill. You're claiming seven yeah. figures of income on a tax return, right. even with depreciation, you're still writing a couple hundred grand minimum. Lambo. A Lambo a year. Yeah. Oh yeah. At least, mm. especially you live in a state where there's income tax too. So you got state tax mm. too, but yeah. anyway, I digress. You've built yourself up after that. So now you're at a point where you have your business set up to where VAs, I believe run the entire thing. I think you work what one hour a week in the business, if that. Yeah. About so, two and a half hours a month. Two and a half hours a month. So mm. that's like what? One 30 minute meeting a week, basically. Yeah. In terms of your setup, your wholesaling houses in the Midwest, virtually, I'm just looking at my notes here. So the big limiting belief I feel like a lot of people will have, and we'll unpack that, is I don't think a lot of people believe a virtual assistant overseas can buy a house over the telephone. I feel like you probably hear that question once a week, yeah. uh, if not once a day. So how have you been able to develop a system to where you can get virtual assistants buying and selling houses? Because a lot of people have VAs for admin work, but when it comes to sales, they mm -hmm. don't do it, right? They think they have to have somebody who is local. I think I invented it. I, I, yeah, don't I, think I was going to say, I ever... think you might be the OG pioneer for doing this. Yeah. So I started using v virtual assistants in 2015. And by 2020, I had every position filled except for sales. And I'd always believed that everybody always told me virtual assistants can do anything robotic or repetitive, but they can't do sales. And by 2020, the world was changing with COVID. And I, I went to my team and I just said, hey, this is our calling card. This is the world telling us that we need to go virtual in the sales side too. So the first thing I did was I took my acquisitions guy that was an American guy. He probably helped me buy 15, 20 houses a month for four years straight. Yeah. Really talented guy. When we put him on the phone though, he was really good in person, but on the phone he couldn't close. So he went from like 15 to 20 houses a month by himself to two to three. Wow. And I realized very quickly, he wasn't going to make it. We went to my top person on my team and I just said, we've got virtual assistants doing everything. We probably will fail. It probably won't work, but let's at least try to see if we can teach a VA how to close. I was fed up with the American closers. We tried to hire another one after him and American closers, a lot of times what ends up happening is once you teach them the business, they either one, become your competition, they quit and become your competition. Yep. Two, you teach them the business, they get really good, and then they say, hey, now that I'm really good, I want more money. Or three, they say, hey, if you won't pay me more money, I'll go to work for the competition that will. And so I just didn't want to deal with that anymore. I wanted yeah. to go with a virtual assistant that didn't have those issues. So we decided to give it a try. We're very methodical. We've always tracked everything in the business. We process everything. So what we did was we sat down and said, okay, if it was true, if it was possible to have an acquisitions person out of the Philippines as a VA, what would have to be true in order to make that true? And we laid out basically a butcher block piece of paper with the process of what it would take to find and train that VA. I created sales training myself. I only took in 2018, actually you were there. Mm -hmm. I took that sales training with John Martinez. But prior to that, I had never done sales training. I closed thousands of deals with techniques I learned on my own. Yeah. And so I basically created my own sales training. We did this 
whole process we found and screened a VA, taught him. I was so convinced it wouldn't work. I wouldn't even let my team spend new marketing money on him. I made him go back and only work on old leads. He got 17 houses under contract in his first 30 days. I didn't even believe it. I said, we are the luckiest people ever. We found the only person in the Philippines that can close. It can't be repeatable. So I ended up calling five of my friends that do a lot of deals, told them what I figured out, said it probably was a fluke, Probably can't repeat, but I wanted to try it with them. Got them convinced to pay a small fee for me to find and train theirs. Placed five more, freaking crushed again. Now, we didn't crush with as many contracts, but you don't need to do that many contracts with an acquisitions person to kill it. You can do three to five a month and make a ton of money. So it repeated every time. And all of a sudden, I was doing it in my business. I started offering it to other people. Now I have a virtual assistant company that finds and trains VAs for other people. Nobody has acquisitions VAs. I'm the only person. Imagine having a product that nobody else has. My company, my virtual assistant company went to a million dollars in 90 days. And so we cracked the code. And to this day, we only use VAs. I have seven figure wholesalers across the country that use my VAs as closers on their team. And now it's no big deal. We don't think it's a big deal. It's just normal. It's just, hey, you need help on the closing side. We got VAs that can do it. We have streamlined the screening and training process. The magic behind it though is we bring hundreds through per month and train them and we only place 5.5 percent so in other words we spend all this money finding and training them and we make the parameter so difficult to graduate only five and a half out of every hundred that graduate get placed that system it's like shaking rocks out of a thing of sand like you Mm -hmm. shake the sand hard enough the rocks will stay and the sand will go through with that being said let me ask you this question because i'm just trying to think of all these limiting beliefs people have in the midwest that might work and obviously i know this works i'm just like playing devil's advocate what Mm -hmm. if i live in los angeles california i bet you you have people say i'm in la i can't do this in la or new york where i'm from that's a crazy market too yeah we're in a lot of different markets with a lot of different um, acquisitions. I would say most of my clients are probably Midwest, though, yeah. just because it's how it works. There's just a lot of wholesalers that kind of yeah. hang out in the Midwest area. But I haven't had somebody say, oh, it didn't work because I live in this area. I have cold callers too. In the cold caller side, we had a big investor that spends half a million a year in, or half a million a month in marketing, test my cold callers in San Diego and Three weeks in, he calls me up, which was last Tuesday. He calls me up and he's like, I've tested over 20 companies. Nobody even comes close to your cold callers. Number two is not even close. He told me, he's like, you're 5X too cheap on your price. And he goes, I've never had a cold call company start and me wholesale a deal that they found within two weeks of starting. That actually happened. I think I know I, who you're talking about, but we won't mention his name. Yeah, I won't mention <laughs> it. I know the guy. But there's only so many people yeah. that spend half a million dollars a month. In San Diego. Yeah. So anyway, I use the same process for all the VAs. Yeah. And so it works with the acquisitions VAs. It works with the cold callers, marketing VAs, lead managers, dispo VAs. So basically what I did was I just took the team I built for my own wholesaling business and started offering VAs to other people if they wanted to go completely virtual. The beauty of it is this. You can get up in the morning, you can point to a map, and you can go anywhere. And you'll have leads that day because there's no barrier because you're doing everything over the phone and the internet. That's how businesses can scale because I Mm -hmm. see so many local operators. They're just 
limited by the chains in their mind. I've been buying houses over the phone now with an in-person American acquisitions guy. But I remember when we first started, it was like, oh my God, the first thought in a lot of people's brains, is, we got to go see it. No, you don't. And then you get desensitized to it. And then it's like our process now is all over the phone and you get used to it. And now everyone's catching on to the trend. They're like, oh yeah, let's go virtual now. But like you said, if you're mm -hmm. not happy with your market in Seattle or wherever, you want to go in Kansas City, Missouri, you plug the system in, Midwest market, et cetera. So with that being said, now let's talk a little bit nuances with markets in the Midwest. I don't do business in the Midwest. I would assume that market, you're going to have to get less leads to get contracts. Your assignment fee is going to be a little lower, but mm -hmm. then you're going to have more volume, more spread out consistency. In Seattle, mm -hmm. Miami, New York, San Diego, you're going to have harder acquisition, bigger assignment fees to make up for the difficulty of the houses. 100%. Yeah. Midwest, yeah. So when people ask me, they come to me and they're like, hey, I want to try your VAs. And they're in a market that they feel in their mind is what would be too hard to wholesale in. So they ask me like, what would you choose? And I always, I basically lay that out. If you want to go more cash flow wise, get more deals, close more often, go to the Midwest. You're dealing with smaller ARVs, which is going to give you smaller assignment fees, but you yep. can close them more often and you can build it into a cash flow business where you've got closings every week, paying your overhead, you get to keep some of it and then your profits. And so I always tell everybody it's easier to get your first deal in the Midwest. Now it's very difficult to close six figure deals in the Midwest. I've done it on a lot of apartment buildings, 150, $200,000 house. You knock down a 35 to $50,000 wholesale and you've done a really good job. The home run in the Midwest. Yeah. So our average fees, they're always around the 12 to 15,000. 2021, um, in those few years before that, we were in 17, 18,000 range, but it's dropped in the last couple of years, but we're still doing good volume. So it's not any harder to get deals. It's just the buyers aren't paying quite as much as what they were. Well, you have the volume to make up for it. So I see a lot of people brag about making $40,000 assignment fees, but they're doing two a month versus the guy doing $15,000 assignment fees doing 20 a month. Who's making more money mm -hmm. in that case? So Yeah, yeah. It's not only that, but the guys that are doing the 40,000, 50,000, you only hear from them every couple of months. They go really quiet for a month yeah. or two. So Greg, I'm known in the industry since I've been around a while, I've done 4,000 plus deals. I'm the guy that gets the phone call when crap's hitting the fan. So the biggest guys in the country will call me and they're like, I'm, they're freaked out. It's so funny because one conversation, I'm crushing it, I'm killing it, I'm doing all this stuff. And then they call me six months later. I think I'm going to go bankrupt. I can't do any deals. I don't know what's happening. Can you take a look at my business? And so I get those phone calls and it's shocking how often you think somebody's killing it when you look on social media and in real life, they're posting that day that they're killing it in real life. They're not. The bottom line is forget about what everybody else is doing. Forget about paying attention to the next guy. Just go out and do your thing. Stay tight on your business. Watch your KPIs closely. Be diligent. Work hard. And it's not that difficult to do really well with real estate. For one, it's not a complicated no. business. Simple. Yeah. So I always say that to people. I say this business is simple, but not easy, if that makes any sense. It's not mm -hmm. like doing a software SaaS product and scaling it. It's yeah. very basic business that can be hard but it's so it's straightforward. It's like leads, mm -hmm. offers, contracts, closings, revenue, cost of good. It's all just basic shit. Yeah, I actually think for me, the way I have it set up is pretty easy too, because when I say I would do two and a half hours a month, I don't decide what we offer on houses. I don't decide how much we market the house to sell it for. I don't talk to buyers. I don't talk to sellers. I don't talk to title companies. I don't do anything. I don't do any of that. I do a meeting a week, which is scheduled for 30 minutes. Typically, we're done in 20. I check my KPIs twice a day, which is like 10 to 15 seconds each time. And then I look at my end of week reports, and then I meet up 
mobile notary at my house here, sits on the other end of this table. Uh, I sign all my closings for the week in one shot. If we do an assignment of contract, I don't even have to do that. My team yep. just signs it for me and I don't have to deal with it. We do a lot of double closes, but the assignments, those are even easier. I actually like doing That's those. Easy, it's simple. You don't need mm -hmm. to notarize those. That's incredible, yeah. man. So yeah. let me ask you this now. You're doing this in the Midwest now. Are you a believer of being in one market? Or I'm in multiple markets. I'm always probably always going to be in the quad cities, which is the Davenport market, mainly because we're just so good at it. It's been just there for pretty. so long. And so we're in that market. We're doing a lot of deals in Detroit, the Metro Detroit area. I like the Metro Detroit Aren't area. Aren't those houses like $10 though? Like you can get deals for free in Detroit. I was showing my partner. I'm like, dude, look at this shit. Why don't we buy one of these and try to get lucky? I closed 252 in one day in Metro Detroit a few years ago, but it was a few mil to do yeah, that deal. For yeah. the most part, they're cheap. They're cheap houses. You're not making yeah. big assignment fees. You can find yeah. buyers for them that'll pay. Yeah. So I like that market. Again, I build my business around not being creative, not doing novations, no owner finance. I only do easy cash deals. That's it. So that. I'm picking markets where that works because if I have to get involved, my value per hour, my income per hour drops if Matt has to go get involved in a deal. Are we fully capable of doing creative deals? 100%. Piece of cake. But Matt has to get involved. Yeah. I don't want to do that. I love how you say that. And I'm going to tell you why. I've done every deal except for a lease option. Like every type of strategy. I'm sure you have too. We're doing a subject two right now. Biggest pain in the ass for my time. Because I'm the only one who knows how to do it. I have to step in. Mm -hmm. I know the process. But that does not scale. Owner financing doesn't scale. I have those as well. Th that is novations. Everything sounds good until you have to do it. And I right. love how you're so disciplined and focused on cash deals. Because there's all these people out there saying, oh, if you have only one offer, you're screwed. No, you're not. You're fine. You just got to, like mm -hmm. you said, pick the areas where you are in a situation where they work better and keep your business simple so you, Matt, or Greg doesn't have to get involved because these creative deals can technically make you more money. But what is that worth? It's you're breaking right. your business complications. So are you rehabbing right. or are you just strictly wholesaling now with all no, this? No, we do some fix and flips too, but okay. I'm, uh, let me get to that in a minute because I'm going to tell sure. you something I'm changing over time now I'm getting older. But let me go back to what you said. I want everybody to pay attention to what I'm about to say. Anybody that tells you X, no longer works and you have to do Y was never good at X. Okay. So in other words, wholesaling, cash wholesaling doesn't work any, anymore. You now need to do novations. They were just never good at wholesaling because the bottom line is there's people looking for properties that have cash every single day. There's sellers looking to sell. You don't have to get creative. You don't have to learn for owner finance if you don't want. You don't have to do novations. You can just go get a house under contract that's a good deal. Find a buyer that will pay top dollar or the highest buyer you can and assign the contract. That's it. Simple. That will yeah. never go out of business. That will That'll never, never that's never going away. But yeah, so the fix and flip thing, I'm even slowing down. I did, see, 2017, I did 504 deals that year. And a big portion of those were fix and flip. But the older I get, the wiser I get, the less movement I want to do. And so fix and flip requires movement. It requires contractors. It requires a lot of times banks or money. private money. And I don't like those extra moves. So I like wholesaling because I can sit at my lake house. I don't have to answer emails. I don't have to answer phone calls. I don't have to talk to people. Deals happen. So the challenge I'll put in front of anybody is on a fix and flip is what are you really in? You're in the money business. A wholesaling and fix and flip is the money business. You're not keeping the house. It's not in your portfolio. It's just, I'm going to take this amount of money and create this amount of money. With wholesaling, I'm taking this amount of money and I'm going to create this amount of money. 
The challenge I'll make to people is why even do fix and flip? Why do you need to? Because if you buy a house and you're going to put $40,000 in rehab into it, and that's going to make you 30 grand, 40 grand, 50 grand, I promise you, if you put 40,000 into marketing, you'll go make more faster. Yeah. With a quicker cash conversion cycle with less operational garbage. Right. So I'm telling my own self this story because I've done a lot of fix and flips. And I'm like, well, Matt, why do a fix and flip? Why do you think you need to? You have a deal. You could wholesale it for 10,000, but you could fix and flip it and make 40. So it's enticing to go do that, but there's a lot of moving pieces over there. Why not just take the 10 grand, save the 30 you would have put into rehab or the 20, go throw that into marketing and go make the 40, but make it easier. Yep. And, and I agree, especially too, with the liability of fix and flipping, you have post-sale liability, you have rehab liability, there's slip and mm -hmm. falls. We've seen everything. And I'm glad you made this point in the beginning. The objective of a fix and flip is a transaction just like a wholesale. You're not keeping it. Like right. rentals are a whole nother business, which is a different topic mm -hmm. for a different day. But a fix and flip, you're getting paid when the house sells and you're done. It's the same shit. Right. You're making a little bit more money on paper. Yeah. So why bother with it? I agree, man. It's still the cash. It's a cash business, but there's risk. If you haven't mastered marketing, you're looking at it as, well, yeah, I could only make 10,000 wholesaling it, but I make 40,000 if I flip it. So it makes more sense to go flip it. If you're not good at marketing, yeah. But if you're yeah. really good at marketing, you could take the money you would have put into rehab and go put it into marketing and and get way more leads and have way more deals that will pay you 20, 30, 40, 50 year grant. hundred percent, man. I agree. And that's why I love selling to people who don't know how to market because they have to rely on me and I can make more money wholesaling it to them because they're not going to go out and go find the house themselves. That's why they come right. to me. So mm -hmm. it's a win-win for both parties when people don't know how to market and they're buyers. So Matt, we covered a lot of ground today, buddy. Last thing I'm going to talk about before we share how people can get in touch with you is when you had those rentals before everything went crazy with the property manager, you had 400 units. I hear two sides of the story. Some people love rentals. They say, I wish I bought more. Other people say, I hate rentals. They're not worth it. They don't make money. You've been there and done that, right? Is your honest opinion about owning a serious rental portfolio? Is it worth if, it or not? If you're owning a rental portfolio because you want cash flow, you're not going to get it. It's not going to cash flow. I bought a lot of properties in the lowest of the low, and I own some of those still to this day. And the cash flow is still not exciting all these years later. You might get paid today. You might get paid next month, but something will happen and it'll take away your cash flow. A move out doesn't lease fast enough. Somebody beats up the house and you have to rehab it. An insurance claim, a storm hits, roofs yep. go bad, awesome. whatever. Something's going to happen to that house and you're not getting your money. Okay. So if you're doing it for cash flow, don't do it. If you're doing it for tax reasons where you want the depreciation to help shelter some of your income, but you're not counting on the cash flow, then you might want to. Ultimately, is this. My wholesaling business creates more income with less effort than my portfolio of houses create. In other words, I still have 100 properties left over. Those 100 properties take more emails, more effort, more phone calls, more bad news, more everything than my wholesaling business that makes 100 times more money. Look at that. That's from an expert right there, ladies and gentlemen, because I'm going to agree with you because of this. I had a rental property I bought years ago. It was making a lot of cash flow on paper. The tenants moved out last week. I'm sinking $28,000, which is much more than I've ever made in my own money. I thought I was making all this money for four years. All that profit and then some is going right back into that bastard. 28 grand to lease it up to do it again in five years. So it tax wise, it makes sense from a cash flow standpoint. Yeah, I agree. They don't make money, but for taxes, they can make sense. So Matt, you're a wealth of knowledge, my friend. People I'm sure are going to want to get in touch with you. What is the best way people can reach out to you? I know you got a lot of offerings, coaching and your deal lab. So what's the best website to have them go to? If you go to my website, realestatematt.com,
Yeah, realestatematt.com. On the very first page when you log in, you'll see my social profiles. I'm most active on Facebook. If you go to Facebook and you want to get a hold of me, just hit me on the messenger. And it's the one platform I actually check all the time. If you hit me on Instagram or TikTok or one of those, it's going to be one of my VAs that hit you back. But Facebook, it's me. So you can hit me up there realestatematt.com. We'll make sure we put that in there. And Matt, I appreciate you being a guest on the show. You shared a lot of value and I'm sure people are going to be reaching out to you. Thank you. 